Welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series will focus on the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which is predicted to reach epidemic levels in our lifetime. We will have discussions with patients, physicians, and scientists to increase our understanding of how superbugs are impacting our healthcare systems globally. They will also highlight actions that we can take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections. This series is co-created by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. I'm your host, Dr. Marnie Peterson. Welcome back, everyone, to the second episode of Superbugs and You. We have another great episode planned with more incredible guests. We'll be talking about sepsis. According to estimates from the World Health Organization, 20% of global deaths are due to sepsis. In this episode, I will speak with a patient who was diagnosed with sepsis and how she had to undergo extensive antimicrobial treatment over long periods of time to treat her multidrug resistant infection. In addition, I will be speaking with her treating physician and the challenges he faced in selecting the treatment regimens for her infection. Finally, we will be speaking with the founder of the Global Sepsis Alliance and how he has dedicated the last 20 years to bringing awareness to sepsis and its overall impact on global health. Our first guest today is Mary Millard. Hi, my name is Mary Millard, and I am a retired LPN who eventually became a practice manager, and uh, that got me to uh, apply for my master's in education for training and development. Um, since uh, I have gained this infection, I've become a, an advocate to raise awareness of healthcare-acquired infections and to make sure that we can try to save lives and that other people know about this. I was really very surprised um, how many people are unaware of that this can happen. So that has been my goal in life. Uh, I live with my husband, a dog and two cats, and, um, you know, life goes on. <laughs> Explain to us how you became infected with a bacteria that caused septic shock. Um, I was a very healthy um, middle-aged adult, had no high blood pressure, no diabetes, nothing was wrong. I went and saw a GP every five years. That was about it. Um, I was also very active and very fit at the time. And after some uh, AFib or um, atrial fibrillation episodes, we went to an emergency room because it got really bad. And they discovered a 6.3 centimeter aneurysm on my aortic root and that my aortic valve had partially collapsed. I was admitted for surgery. Uh, the day before the surgery, uh, was having a regular morning routine and I felt um, a, like a stabbing hot sword go into my chest over and over again. And I went into full cardiac arrest. I uh, made it back to the bed to be able to push the nurse's button, but by then white coats were all running in the room. Uh, I must tell you that from then on, I have absolutely no memory of what happened until step down. Everything I gained, I gained from my doctors, my PAs, my nurses, my medical records, and my husband, um, all this information. So uh, they tried the paddles three times. I had a six-minute code, and they put me on ECMO, which basically is life support. It's where machinery circulates and oxygenates your blood for you. I was put uh, on an external pacemaker. Uh, they had to break apart the thrombus uh, in one of the arteries, but my heart didn't come back, and uh, I was intubated. For three days, I was on the ECMO, and on the fourth day, my husband was told that my heart was coming back. So I went into a two-week recovery, apparently. Um, every day, my husband said they snaked the camera down my nose. They were afraid the aneurysm would burst. So as soon as they could, uh, they went ahead and did the open-heart surgery. So apparently, I was already infected, 
with a superbug uh, during that open heart surgery, and they were not aware of it. So I received a prosthetic valve. I received a prosthetic graft. And uh, by closing, I uh, got the sternal wires. And from the ECMO, I also had a patch, uh, a poly patch on the femoral artery in my groin. That's where one of the cannulas went. Um, five days after that, uh, I was apparently put in step down to go home. And my husband came in on a Sunday morning and found me unable to hold my head up. Uh, I was warm to the touch. And he said I didn't make any sense in what I was saying. So he thought I was on some medication mix that was doing this. Uh, he went and located a nurse. And at that time, uh, I just had open heart surgery. And it's very common uh, with open heart surgery to for somebody to have a stroke. Little embolisms will break off of the repair that they've done. So a stroke code was called. And um, I went uh, into neurology to get a workup. And at that point, they discovered that I was in acute septic shock. Uh, I went back to the ICU, uh, was given a, a 98% uh, mortality rate, and my husband was just told that I was very sick uh, and that I had a blood infection. He didn't know what this was. So uh, this ended up with another surgery um, a week and a half later to debride the area and to uh, take the omental flap, which is part of the li uh, lining, a rich blood lining in your abdomen, and they flip that up and put that in the chest area and wrapped it around the graft. It does have an immune uh, tendency, so they hoped that that would help. After that, uh, it took a long time to recover. I was put into step down to go home, and after 61 days in the hospital, I was finally sent home. Explain to us why there is such an urgency for diagnosis of sepsis. Yeah, the delay itself uh, caused more organ damage. Um, the bacteria that I acquired was Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and it actually came from the ECMO cannula. So it had cooked in my body for quite a while also before the septic shock. And um, this urgency that you have because the faster you can diagnose that sepsis, the faster a body can heal itself, the less damage that's done to the organs, um, the easier it is to heal because a lot of people that actually go into the hospital probably aren't as healthy as I was. And, um, you know, there's a, a very high rate of death with sepsis because either of misdiagnosis, delay in treatment, or that people have so many comorbidities that they are not, uh, you know, can't take the uh, healing very well. So, um, it, it is a very important process. Um, I was a bit surprised because I did have a fever. Um, I feel maybe I wasn't properly assessed. Um, I also did have purulent wounds at the time. So, um, you know, I, I really thank the neurosurgeon that discovered or the neurologist that discovered this or thought this because I could have sat there for even longer, you know, and maybe not been here today. And you talked about you had less than 5% chance of survival at one point in the hospital. And then 60 days later, you were able to leave the hospital. But that didn't mean that your, your cha the challenge was over. Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, you know, first off, my husband nor I, uh, somewhere in step down, I kind of heard in the back of my head that um, I heard a nurse say the infection's gone. So I thought, oh, I had a minor infection. Everything's fine now. But in step down, I could barely talk because I'd been intubated for two months. I couldn't talk above a whisper. I couldn't use hands to my hands to write a note. And this was very confusing to me as, you know, why was this happening? Um, it was really not explained to me. I got enough physical therapy to walk the three steps up my back porch so I could go home. You mentioned that the bacteria that they isolated that we were infected with was Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and that in and of itself, it's difficult to treat. Um, so maybe just talk a little bit about the, the complications simply from the bacteria and the antibiotics that you were then placed on and some of the just 
adverse effects that you ended up having from needing this, you know, high dose extensive treatment of antibiotics? Uh, certainly. Um, I was on, uh, again, I discovered that it was tobramycin and cepifime the entire time in the hospital and those 30 days. Um, but I was placed on Cipro, uh, 1,000 milligrams of Cipro after the antibiotics were done when I saw my infectious diseases doctor. And part of the problem with Pseudomonas is the one that I've got and the one that most people attain, especially in the respiratory units in hospitals, is multi-drug resistant. And there's only very few IV antibiotics and Cipro is the only thing that will suppress it um, into, out of your bloodstream. Um, it was expensive and uh, the Cipro did a lot of damage. Um, it's a black boxed drug, uh, has been several times over again. It causes tendon damage. Um, it causes photosensitivity, joint pain. And um, I had all these things were starting to build and build. Uh, I was actually on 1,000 milligrams of Cipro until six months later when the Pseudomonas overrode that dose and came back. And I went septic again and another week in the hospital, another 30 days, um, you know, on the IV antibiotics. And then I was put on 1,500 milligrams a day. Um, it also messes with your microbiome in your gut. And, um, you know, uh, hate to say it, but you live with diarrhea many days out of the week. And uh, it's something you try to offset. You know, I talked with my infectious diseases doctor, so I tried to drink kombucha, eat as many fermented foods as I could. I was on four different probiotics, um, still didn't really work 100%. So you're at home and you're taking the ciprofloxacin to try to prevent the further infection of the pseudomonas and, and, and cure, cure yourself of that. Uh, you also have other, what you've described as a post-sepsis syndrome that you've dealt with uh, personally. And then also there's the whole impact in your, in your life that is on the life of the caregiver that's been taking care of you over this period of time and supporting you. You could just describe a little bit about the syndrome and then also the effect of this that it had on your caregivers in your life. Uh, certainly. Uh, post-sepsis syndrome is something that um, is not highly acknowledged, but doctors are starting to realize it. Um, it actually, uh, you know, it can have PTSD. Uh, it, you can have uh, other nightmares. You can have fatigue, uh, joint pain, uh, cognitive issues. I mean, between the Cipro and having just come off of sepsis, you know, my keys would end up in my refrigerator. I, I was told not to drive because at times I couldn't remember where I was or where I was supposed to be going. I have a, you know, from the sepsis and the ECMO, I have a numb left foot and all my fingers and my other foot tingle. Um, I got tinnitus from the antibiotics, which is constant. So this is all part of what we live with on a daily basis, you know, just having sepsis. Um, my husband was my primary caregiver. Uh, my family's in Wisconsin and his family uh, was very small, was in another town. And um, he was there uh, every day uh, for the 61 days in the hospital. Uh, the doctors would round, you know, at 4.30 in the morning and he'd show up at 5.30 and, oh, he missed him, you know, and, and his frustration trying to find out what was happening, his frustration with how I was treated and stepped down because the nurses fully didn't understand, you know, 60 days in bed uh, plus septic shock, you're going to have trouble standing up, you know. And um, he learned how to bathe me. He learned how to change a wet, dry bandage uh, wound pack. Uh, this is a man who hates hospitals. You know, he actually helped me get on the uh, patient toilet on and off and things like that. So, and he showered me. So, um, it, it's hard on him. Uh, there's not a whole lot of caregiver support groups out there. Uh, he still has some PTSD. He can't stand going back to a hospital. But if I have to go, you know, he takes me. So, Being a septic shock survivor has impacted you professionally as well. And your career and has led you to advocating for a better understanding of this disease and antimicrobial resistance. How did that, how did that start for you? 
and and, and who who do you advocate with and who do you, who do you who's the audience that you that you hope to reach well thank you for asking that um i actually it's kind of a funny transition the first probably year i was just very angry that this happened to me i was you know i did the why me type of thing and you know what uh, this is terrible. I can't work anymore. What am I supposed to do? And it was just like overnight it changed. I went to see my infectious diseases doctor for a visit. And he said, you know, he said, there aren't many surgical site pseudomonas survivors. He said, you have an amazing story. He said, you need to, you know, tell it to somebody. And I said, well, what, you know, how do I do that? Or what do I do? And uh, he set me up with the Infectious Disease Society of America. And uh, they got my story. Uh, I was put in the Faces of Antimicrobial Resistance magazine that they put out. And um, I changed over my LinkedIn page to speaker and what it was about, changed over my Twitter page. And I started um, being asked, you know, uh, to speak. Um, but I, my audience, I get invited to a lot of things, but my, mainly what happens, sometimes I get invited to drug companies because what they talk about is that, especially ones that work on antibiotics, they say our workers, our researchers, our office workers, our warehouse workers have never seen a patient or heard a patient. Um, this would really help them know who they're doing it for. So I'll, um, you know, be flown out to talk to a drug company. I do attend a lot of uh, conferences on antibiotic resistance, such as the Global AMR Conference in Washington, D.C., or ID Week um, for the IDSA. And um, I've talked to the um, to the federal government. I just went out and uh, with Pew Health and pled uh, to congressional people. I, I walked the halls of Congress, which was excruciating, <laughs> but I did it uh, to ask for funding for antibiotics. You know, so there's so much a patient can do, and I think it's so important that we get out here and raise awareness of this. Thank you, Mary, for sharing your story with us and also encouraging individuals to have a voice and advocate. Our next guest is clinician Dr. Vance Fowler. I'm Vance Fowler. I'm a uh, professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at uh, Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And I have uh, been focused on research in um, bacterial uh, infections for most of my career, uh, spanning back to the uh, middle uh, 1990s. I appreciate being here, the opportunity to be here today. Thank you, Dr. Fowler, for joining us. So on the topic of sepsis, from a clinical perspective, why is sepsis such a complex and difficult disease to manage? Well, sepsis is a complex and difficult disease to manage uh, because there's a whole lot that we don't know. Uh, basically, you are uh, seeing the consequences of an infection that you can't fully characterize, um, often in a, a body site infe of infection that you have not yet identified, and uh, you don't know the best antibiotics to use <clears throat> or treatments to provide. Essentially, you're limited in your evaluation to the labs that you can get immediately, right then, um, and your physical exam. And while uh, these are essential elements of a management, certainly necessary elements of any management of an infection, they're probably not always sufficient. So you have uh, some clues. Patient is clearly showing evidence that he or she is infected. Um, and you have some potential culprits based on what your physical exam findings show. Is there an IV catheter site that's infected? Is there a surgical wound that's inflamed? 
Uh, is their urine uh, cloudy and foul smelling? Do they have diarrhea that makes you think about Clostridium difficile infection? You have some clues, but you really don't know what's happening. And probably the most concerning part about it is that sepsis is serious business. Um, there's a significant mortality rate. Um, so there's um, the need for urgency. In fact, there's good evidence that shows that delay in diagnostic treatment um, for patients in an ICU with sepsis or septic shock um, is associated with increased mortality. Essentially, every hour of, di of delay of effective therapy is associated with an increased risk of poor outcome. So time is of the essence and, and data is incomplete. You're an ID consultant, an ID physician that often gets asked to consult on individuals that are presenting with sepsis or septic shock. And you were, you were also asked to be a consultant for Mary Millard. And she uh, went on to have complications due to a gram-negative infection, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. How, when you, when you uh, were asked to consult for her care, uh, what was your approach to her antimicrobial management and what were some of your concerns? I sure was uh, involved in her care, and I remember it well because she was worrisome. Um, I, she was in an ICU. We were called to see her, and uh, she was in active septic shock at the time we came to the bedside. Her husband was there. He was understandably terrified. Uh, she was trying to be very stoic, but uh, clearly there, everyone in, around was aware that these were serious. this was a serious situation. Um, her temperature was up. Her blood pressure was down. <clears throat> uh, she was having signs of organ failure. Um, and so the first uh, thing that, you know, as an ID clinician, you start with is where's the infection? Uh, sometimes it's, it's, uh, you get lucky and you, you can get a reasonable uh, suspicion of a particular site that might be involved. That's important because it gives you clues as to what the, the, first of all, what the germ might be that's causing the problem. And secondly, what the ultimate surgical plan may, uh, may involve. Uh, in Ms. Millard's case, there was a, uh, a site of uh, infection that we identified fairly early. Now, the problem is that doesn't narrow it down a whole lot, and you still have to make some decisions. Treating sepsis is, um, you know, I kind of tell the residents that in terms of, treat, of su successfully treating sepsis and septic shock, you get points for being right and not for style. And uh, that sort of, sort of uh, approach uh, really guides how you're treating those, the, those initial hours. The first thing you got to remember is time is not your friend. You need to get antibiotics in. And at least one of those antibiotics needs to be effective. Because the second uh, thing to remember is that ultimately it's a guess. You don't know what you're treating. You can increase the likelihood that your guess is correct by thinking about the epidemiology, thinking about the potential source of infection. But um, ultimately, it's an your, your treatment decisions in those first couple hours are an educated guess. Where does diagnostics play in and how long does it take for you to understand the bacteria, maybe the resistance profile, so you can start to make those specific adjustments? In terms of diagnostics, it's um, important to remember that the Main antibi or the main uh, microbiology diagnostic process really hadn't changed for over a hundred years, and that is you uh, submit a sample of something, urine, blood, tissue, bone fragment, just whatever it is, and you send it down to the micro lab, and you process it in a way that you can then grow the germ. 
Now, the hope is that, you know, in the midst of this technological revolution that we're uh, seeing unfold around us, we may be eventually be able to reach a point where uh, <clears throat> we can get more rapid diagnostics. In terms of the standard culture, uh, culture uh, processes, you are, in this case, you send a blood culture, you send it to the micro lab, and you may have to wait a day or two days um, before you get enough growth um, to identify the germ. That's if you're lucky. If you're not lucky um, or something has gone wrong or the patient has had prior antibiotics that inhibit the growth of the germ, nothing may grow. And yet you still have to treat the patient, obviously. So the point, I guess, is that uh, diagnostics have lagged uh, behind many of our other medical and technological advances in the management of sepsis. Uh, and if there's one step and one area that we as a specialty could emphasize going forward, I, I, I'd say that it very likely could be diagnostics. Do you feel, as a clinician today, do you have enough options in the treatment and management of the patients that you're seeing well, uh, you know, it's it's sort of a glass half full, glass half empty kind of situation in that I guess the glass is half full in that um, it's certainly better than it was 50 years ago. It's better than it was, you know, um, uh, even, even uh, um, you know, just uh, in the last couple of decades in the sense that um, there are some antibiotics that are available. Uh, we under, we have a good understanding of them. There have been there have been some advances in the um, diagnostic arena uh, for ex things like uh, continuous monitoring blood cultures, and uh, these are fairly mainstream uh, advances now that are several decades old. Uh, more recently, you have uh, in, uh, molecular diagnostics that are beginning to unfold. And then investigationally, there it's it's absolutely fascinating uh, the, the the tools that are uh, being developed by creative investigators all over the world uh, is is really exciting. It's an exciting time for the field of diagnostics. So there's there's been some progress. The downside, or the glass is half empty, is that the, the antibiotic pipeline is going away. Antibiotic development, the field of antibiotic development is um, essentially in its uh, dying throes. I mean, if you just look at, uh, I'm no economist, but um, if you look at the state of uh, drug companies um, developing antibiotics, you can, the, the, the message is very, very clear. Uh, there's been a vast exodus from antibiotics biotic uh, development field uh, over the last 20 odd years. This is a, a uh, concern in that it, I'll give you an example, a specific example. There was a company called uh, Kagen. It developed a uh, drug supported uh, and its development was supported largely by U.S. taxpayer dollars through BARDA funding. This is a, BARDA is a program that is intended to uh, uh, support uh, the development of, of, of promising uh, compounds that would be a benefit to the American people. <clears throat> well, it was, this should have been a success story. This drug, plazomycin, was developed and actually got an FDA approval uh, uh, as it uh, was hoped. And this should have been a uh, well-deserved tap in the, in the hat of, uh, of, the, of all involved. But instead of being successful, uh, within nine months, more or less, of the development of this drug, a Cajun went bankrupt. Uh, and ultimately, this asset, developed again by U.S. taxpayer dollars, was acquired by an international company uh, and uh, for essentially pennies on the dollar. 
that's a problem. That's a problem for uh, patients like Miss Millard. That's a problem for patients in the future like Vance Fowler, uh, because we're all going to be in the hospital sooner or later, and we're all going to be at risk for these infections. They're not going away. And um, we are going to need a robust pipeline for antibiotics uh, to treat the infections that will surely come. Thank you, Dr. Fowler, for describing your perspective as an infectious diseases clinician as well as a researcher. And furthermore, what you feel is necessary for the future and development of new antibiotics. My next guest is Dr. Conrad Reinhardt. Welcome, Dr. Reinhardt. Thank you for the kind invitation to speak to your listeners and you. Currently, I am the president of the Global Sepsis Alliance, and uh, I hold the position of a senior professor at the Charité University of Medicine in Berlin, where also I did my students' training and worked for 20 years. So you spent many years as a, at the, as a clinician managing and treating patients with sepsis, but your, your research and interest has expanded to a more global perspective. And you and your colleagues published a manuscript in the journal, The Lancet, where you determined the global, regional, and national sepsis incidence and mortality. The findings, which are remarkable from 2017, estimated 49 million cases of sepsis recorded worldwide, and 11 million sepsis-related deaths were reported. That represented approximately 20% or one in five of all global deaths. Very significant. And this is some of your more recent work, but you've been focused on this for many decades. And in 2010, knowing that this was a problem and trying to create this awareness, you founded, along with some other colleagues, the Global Sepsis Alliance, and you were the founding president. Talk about why you felt the need to form the Global Sepsis Alliance. What was what was happening, and where where you started, and then where where you are today? I started my career as a young intensivist in Berlin in the late seventies. And what I realized on the ICU was that sepsis already at this time was the main cause of death on ICUs. However, I had never heard about sepsis during my medical education. There were no guidelines, clinical practice guidelines at this time. There were no numbers in terms of the epidemiology of sepsis. There was almost no research in the field and no funding. And uh, so this uh, made me to organize uh, in 1970, when I was still pretty young, at the first worldwide international symposium with the title Sepsis and Interdisciplinary Challenge. In 2012, we came up with this idea of a World Sepsis Declaration, just to have a program until 2020. Uh, and we set out that we need to reduce the number of deaths until 2020 by 20%, which indeed in some countries happened, but this is a minority uh, of uh, countries. And what was very important not only that um, mostly intensivists who realized that, as I said, sepsis is the main cause of death and there's nothing out there uh, that there's need for advocacy, but it was very important to get also uh, policymakers to understand, at least in some countries like the US, the UK, um, that action is needed also on a, from a governmental perspective and uh, so then our 
goal from then on was to achieve a WHO resolution uh, on, 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 on sepsis. And that, that's why we worked on it. Stepping back to the, the paper published in The Lancet, mm-hmm. uh, 11 million sepsis-related deaths, um, 40 million cases of sepsis worldwide. What factors did you identify in, the, in that research that's contributing to such high incidence of sepsis globally? And, and what populations yeah. are tend so, to be most affected? Yeah, so the interesting thing is that most of the deaths occur, obviously, where 80% of mankind lives, which is still the low- and middle-income countries. And most of them are uh, children uh, below five years of age, where indeed sepsis is the main cause uh, of deaths at, at all. And the incidence varies by a factor of 10 between countries like the US or, or Europe and some um, countries in mid uh, sub Saharan Africa, where the incidence is up to and more than 3,000 deaths or, uh, uh, per inhabitants, per 100,000 inhabitants. Uh, but nevertheless, also in the high-income countries, the numbers are pretty high. For example, uh, in the U.S., there are 1.7 million uh, cases per year and uh, 200,070 deaths per year. In Europe, there are more than 6 million cases and more than uh, uh, 350,000 deaths. So it's not only an issue by 100,000 inhabitants. It's not only an issue for the low-income countries, but also for the high-income countries. And why is it uh, at all? It's uh, because it's that sepsis is the complications, the most severe complication from any acute infection, be it bacterial, be it viral, be it um, also fungal. Yeah, the numbers are, as you, as you mentioned, are substantial when you include bacterial, viral, and, and, and malarial um, diseases. Why do you feel that the awareness historically has been so poor uh, related to the, to the impact yeah. of Yes, the reason for this is that, and this is ironically, there was a dramatic decrease of deaths from infectious diseases in the 20th century. So for the U.S., the crude death rate from infectious diseases decreased from 800 per 100,000 inhabitants in 1900 to about... 60 to 70 by 100 inhabitants in the 50s and 60s. Overall, due to better sanitation, chlorinization of water, uh, vaccination, development uh, of antimicrobials like penicillins and, and others, there was no lobby any, any longer, no lobby uh, for people with common infections, and there is no lobby, of course, for pandemics. Or, so, so that's a little bit the background why we in some way are so surprised uh, on the shortcomings, how to cope with this pandemic, etc., etc. So that brings us to th- this month, your efforts with the Global Sepsis Alliance, with colleagues from different countries, as you mentioned, US, UK, even Latin America, and those efforts together um, has brought together the research and the attention of the World Health Organization, where this month, they, in September 2020, the World Health Organization released its first global report on sepsis. And they, they, in that report, they outlined the problem itself, u- utilizing much of your, your data from your reports. And then they outlined ways for improving with prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. So just taking a step uh, to talk about the World Health Organization's involvement and what that's meant. And then from there, I'd like you to talk about 
one of their focus areas is diagnosis and how that can be improved in mm-hmm. potentially some of the lower to middle income countries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this uh, resolution, uh, which was adopted by the World Health Assembly in 2017, was very, very important because it helped a little bit um, to bring this issue on the attention of policymakers. And this resolution not only uh, made clear uh, what sepsis is, that it that most of sepsis cases are preventable. This makes, this is a quote by Director Chen, made sepsis the number one cause of preventable deaths. Tomorrow, on September uh, 17th, we have World Patient Safety Day. And we need remind ourselves that indeed, if it's true, and it is true, that more than 50% of sepsis cases can pre, be prevented, it's clearly the number prevented by prevention, which is vaccination, which is clean water, uh, which is sanitation, uh, because a lot of sepsis in children and in, in underdeveloped countries uh, derives from even diarrheal infections. Number one cause is pneumonia. Uh, then even in, in those countries, accidents by wounds, etc., is uh, plays still a major role. So, so that's very important to understand. And without the authority of WHO, who urged in this resolution their member states to integrate uh, the fight against sepsis in national health strategy. And they urged also for the development of better diagnostics, better treatments, which are badly needed now. And and without this authority of the WHO behind it, it would be even more difficult. It's diff- It's a difficult disease to diagnose in and of itself. Um, it's known that if you delay treatment, you delay antimicrobials due to misdiagnosis, huge impact on mortality. So what what solutions are there? What what resources do you think are needed to improve yeah. diagnosis? Yeah, so uh, it's true that up to 80% of patients with sepsis come from the community to the hospitals. So it was a misconception that most cases, uh, sepsis cases are attributable uh, to healthcare-associated infections so they mostly happen outside the hospital. So this means that every citizen must know uh, the, the, when an uh, uncomplicated infection progresses uh, to a life-threatening and deadly infection, which are simple signs. And, and everybody should know that, for example, the signs of, of, of sepsis, if you have difficulties of breathing, if you are breathing fast and, and hard, if you have a high heart rate, if you have fever and shivering, if you have a, a drop in blood pressure, if you produce not much urine. So, and this, this indication of that you may progress to sepsis should be known both by healthcare workers, but also by lay people. And this needs to be educated everywhere. Then, what is also very important, every nurse everywhere on the world needs to understand the signs where to alarm somebody uh, to look for these patients and then to treat them if necessary on an ICU, etc. And this is missing in 90% of the countries and in many, many hospitals also in the so-called developed uh, world where, where I come from. I want to ask you next about antibiotic resistance and mm-hmm. how this complicates treatment. What What are your thoughts on the, how that complicates treatment of sepsis and how antimicrobial stewardship is is helping to play a role? Yeah, it's an increasing issue because more and more patients, not only on the ICU, but also on regular wards, uh, it's 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 very uh, important, uh, and it adds to the workload um, because these patients in some settings need to be isolated, etc., etc. And um, to prevent 
we will we never be able to prevent completely antimicrobial resistance because antimicrobial resistance is as long as, <laughs> as, old as mankind. But we must thoroughly use um, antimicrobials and teach every physician when he, to recognize when people need an antimicrobial and and then give it to them because still more people die because they have either no access to antimicrobials or they they are uh, they they obtain them uh, too too late often they are treated much too long with antimicrobials and we need better learn and need better tests uh, be it biomarkers but it's mostly also education uh, and of course we need also technologies who not only in the hospitals but also in the outpatient setting who allow a physician to distinguish is this viral or this is this bacterial uh, and and this cause uh, uh, we probably 50 percent uh, of people with infections uh, at least in the outpatient setting have viral infections where it does not make sense at all to treat uh, 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 with antibiotics Microbials, and this is also true for COVID-19, as we know. So th there needs to be much more education and diagnostic tools. Thank you, Dr. Reinhardt, for all the work that you've done to create global awareness of the implications of sepsis and charting a course for the future. At the end of our interview, I asked each of our guests the following question. What actions can we all take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections? You know, I look at it on sort of two levels, uh, self and society. You know, from the perspective of self, I'd, you know, I'd say the sort of basic um, measures that you can employ or things like use antibiotics judiciously um, and ideally uh, only under uh, the guidance or the, the supervision of a, of a licensed practitioner. You know, that whole thing about finding your, you know, your kids or your significant other's prescription of Keflex from five years ago and using that um, isn't the way to go, as tempting as it may sometimes be. Second thing I think, you know, or that would be hopefully something that all of us are doing these days is, uh, you know, attention to hand hygiene, you know, making sure that you're washing your hands frequently with soap and water or with um, alcohol hand gel. And, um, and that's important to um, the, uh, the transmission, not just of COVID, uh, 19, but also a flu, and for that matter, of drug-resistant bacteria. So those would be two things to consider from a self standpoint. From society's perspective, it's a little bit trickier. But the message is, I think that the one thing I'd say that all of us can do is let our elected officials know that this is a decision, this is a topic that matters to you. They can take care by themselves, which means uh, checking and learning on the early signs, as I said, to be able, when they need to seek emergency care, because sepsis needs to be treated as an emergency, and they need how to uh, protect themselves. So this means to get vaccinated, against influenza, have a healthy lifestyle, which means avoid alcohol, uh, in, <laughs> uh, no, no drugs and no smoking. So these are the, the, the issues you can do and, of course, care for clean water, etc., where this is available and possible and uh, observe um, yeah, distance uh, when you are confronted with people who have, be it COVID or be it uh, seasonal flu. 
Well, one thing they can do is also be very careful about antibiotics. You know, we overuse antibiotics. Uh, we think it's a quick fix. And we also give them to our animals uh, in droves to help them grow stronger and help them avoid getting sick. The problem is antibiotics get into the water system. Uh, they're everywhere. And uh, the more antibiotics we take, the more these bugs become resistant to them. So we have to be careful about that. Um, you know, we need to educate that antibiotics are for bacterial infections, not for viruses. Um, I can't tell you in nursing how many times people said, I have a cold, can I have some antibiotics? You know, so it's, it's education, educate yourself. Also, if you're in the hospital, um, be aware that infections can happen and how they carry. Um, it's been shown that uh, doctors' white coat on the collar and on the pockets and on the sleeves carry staph and carry MRSA and E. coli. Um, so encourage your doctors, you know, do you really need that white coat? Unfortunately, it's like a symbol, but, you know, that they like, uh, um, but uh, it's something that passes on infections. Uh, infections, uh, these same pathogens can be on a stethoscope. Ask your doctor to wipe his stethoscope before he uses it on you. Um, there's things that you can do to educate yourself, to talk to your physicians and talk to your hospital about. It is very difficult to get into a hospital and talk about it. They don't like to hear about it, but you can't be afraid to talk about it. Um, they hate to see me coming. I ask housekeeping to do better when they come in the room. You know, what are you using to wipe that? Have you, why are you not wiping my remote, my telephone and my bed rails, you know, um, things like that. And you really have to be strong and speak up for yourself to help to stop the spread of infections. You've been listening to Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the impact of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. The podcast is produced by Maya Peters, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, sidrap.umn.edu ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at sidrap underscore ASP and at AM Resistance.